Hey, this is Carl. Are you interested in Xamarin Forms? Do you want to get started with me? Well, if you're going to Dev Intersection October 25th through the 28th, consider going to my Xamarin Forms workshop on Monday, October 24th. It's going to be an all-day workshop. The first half, we're going to set up Xamarin Forms and go through the whole process of getting all your devices hooked up. And second half, we're going to dive right in. We're going to do a whole bunch of stuff, including an MVVM application that you'll be able to use as a model for your stuff going forward. We're going to deal with native components as well as the stuff that's in the box XAML-wise. So go to devintersection.com right now and sign up for the workshop. There's still a few seats left, and uh, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1364. Recorded Sunday, October 9th, 2016. Welcome back. It's Carl and Richard geeking out again. Hey, Mr. Campbell, how you doing? Hey, dude. I am awesome. I have I have gone through an interesting mental tour getting this geek out ready. <laughs> this ought to be fun. You know, yeah, it's going to be fun. I started out thinking Elon was crazy and looking at all the holes and then uh, thought about all the ways we could make it better. And then I thought about all the little things he didn't explain. But now that I've studied it harder, maybe he's right about some things. So. We're going to have to go through the full tour. He can be right and crazy at the same time, can he? I'm not disagreeing with you. He's kind of a little single-minded on this particular subject. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have something very geeky, and so geeky, in fact, it brings geekiness to a whole new level. You're going to raise the geek. I'm raising the geek. I'm excited. Check this out. Go ahead and roll the music. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, our good friend Joel Heelan, he found this on Gizmodo. It's uh, 1364.pwop.me. This smartphone microscope lets you play games with microbes. That's weird. <laughs> what you see, there's a picture of little microbes crawling around on your screen and a little Pac-Man superimposed over it following the, the track of one particular microbe and eating up the dots as it goes along. Introducing Ludus Scope, L-U-D-U-S Scope, a 3D printed open sourced system that lets you control and play games with living microbes on your smartphone. Tormenting single-celled organisms has never been so much fun. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> Ludus Scope was developed by Stanford engineer Ingmar Rydell Kruse or Crozet, I'm not sure if I mispronounced that, and he envisioned it as a new way of interacting and learning about common microbes. It's meant for use in educational settings, and teachers can easily 3D print their own ludoscope using plans downloaded from the internet. Students can assemble their own device with very little help required from their teachers. And uh, they show a picture of it, basically. It's this microscope that you connect your smartphone to, and it zooms in really, really far on your screen, and, and there you go. Many subject areas like engineering or programming have neat toys that get kids into it, but microbiology doesn't have that to the same degree, noted Rydell Cruzy in a release. 
The initial idea for this project was to play games with living cells on your phone, and then it developed much beyond that to enable self-driven inquiry, measurement, and building your own instrument. How cool is that? That is really neat. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know about playing games with micros, but just we need more microscopes in our lives. Totally. I, and, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a little hoarse because I've been singing, but, you know, even the simple thing as you get a cold, like it would appear that I might have a cold, or is it bacterial or is it viral? When you go to the clinic, all they really have to do is take a sample, look at it under a microscope and tell you whether it's bacterial or, or viral, depending on, you know, what technology they have. And they don't do that. They just listen to you and they say, here, take this antibiotic. And if right. you have a virus, uh, an antibiotic is going to set you back a couple of weeks because you're effectively, um, you know, reducing your immune system's ability to fight it. And if you do have a bacterial infection, well, great. But, you know, how, how often is it viral? The sizes between the two are radically different, right? Like, it's, it's not the same. Yeah, exactly. I'd like to have a microscope in my house with some slides that I could cough onto and learn to see the difference. This is just an engineer's, uh, you know, natural curiosity unfolding. Yeah. Sure. Very yeah, cool. I think med the medical system is not well suited to thoroughly understanding things. It's like, what can I do to get you done quickly? Yeah. And without uh, repercussions to me, if I'm wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we're going to see, as we've said in our keynote uh, speeches, Richard, we think we're going to see more of this sort of, you know, do-it-yourself science at home. Uh, this is just one application of it, but, you know, it's kind of fun. But uh, I would really love to see, you know, be able to take a slide, put it under a microscope and have some analysis, have some software, you know, doing some image uh, comparison and, and telling me what I'm actually looking at. And it, and that's the interesting part is could you know uh, making drawing good conclusions from that information as well exactly. is very tough. Yeah, it's one thing to have the device and operate the device. It's also you know even trickier to actually get useful information from the device. But you know, image recognition is one of those things that requires fuzzy pictures. The fuzzier, the better, and uh, without a lot of detail. And that's exactly what you get with a slide, you know, with some stuff in it. Yeah, I, yep, I think true. that could be developed. I, I tend to agree. Yeah. So who's talking to us, Mr. Campbell? Uh, grabbed a comment off a show, 1313, which we did back in June of 2016. And we talked about reusable spacecraft. And, of course, SpaceX factored very large into that conversation. Yeah. And uh, and Joseph Covillian, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly, had this comment. He says, I think on reusability, the question isn't so much will it work, but what will be the workable flow of reusable and non-reusable flights? which is driven by customer needs instead of technology. All rocket engines are already fired multiple times as part of assembling a rocket. The coking and wear of the engine is largely testable on the ground. But if 10% of the customers have heavy payloads that don't result in returning a stage, then you'll have a reuse of about 10 times. All right, I'm just doing the math there. Mm. So in theory, 90% of the customers are reusing rockets, then, you know, most rockets will be reused 10 times. Once in a while, they'll have a heavy payload because it substantially reduces the payload capacity to return the rocket. Yeah. It, that that will waste the rocket. I would suspect you'll end up building two separate rockets, a reusable one and a non-reusable one. Okay. Uh, and we'll get into that as we go further into the show. We talked about this in reusable rockets, that you actually build the rocket differently when you're planning on reuse. So I sort of disagree with that. 
And he goes on to say, the Falcon 9 Heavy with its side boosters guaranteed a more benign reentry profile, and it's probably the best way for SpaceX to increase rocket reuse to a level that the wear on the rocket will become an issue that needs to be managed. Like, are we actually going to use the rocket enough that it wears out? A uh, couple of concerns here, Joseph. We already know for sure that flying an RP-1 rocket engine into space versus firing it on the ground is different. The effect of vacuum on partially reacted RP-1 is significant. It does damage to the rocket engine. So it was one of the things, the big thing they were looking at there was what happens when that when that goes on. And so we're not going to know until we've flown the rockets a bunch of times exactly what happens to the engines with RP-1. But it's yeah. also a big reason to get away from RP-1 in the first place. Yeah. Is that it is not a good fuel for reuse, in my opinion, and apparently in everyone else's opinion, too. So mm. that needs to be resolved. And on the reusability rockets episode, I did talk about what would Elon do differently. Like, how would you build a rocket engine if you knew you're going to use it a whole bunch of times? And I've started getting more information in that space. I mean, one of them is changing over to the, to methane as a fuel, but there's a bunch of other things. So I do think you end up making a more expensive rocket engine because you're planning on reuse and you'd have a less expensive one when you don't want to reuse it that probably delivers more power and more payload. But okay. We'll get further into that. Yeah. Uh, either way, thank you so much for your comment, Joseph. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. We look at them under microscopes. <laughs> Good one. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we should. Well. Well. So, on September 27th, yeah. there was a video released. There was actually a live broadcast from an interplanetary society meeting in Mexico, of all places. Okay. And Elon kind of stole the show with this hour-long conversation about how to make humans a multiplanetary species. That was the m mission. And in that, he sort of revealed this interplanetary transport system, ITS. Right. You've seen it. Yep. I've seen it. Yep. Anybody listening to the show better go see it. Because I'm not going to review the whole thing. It's pretty awesome. There's too much to talk about. But, yeah, the cornerstone of this whole idea is a really big rocket. Really, really big. Yes. Really big holds what? A hundred people? Yes. The, the, the idea is to have uh, a two-stage rocket, which is very unusual for this kind of size. So, first stage gets you more or less to orbit. Second stage is actually the spacecraft, which finishes the orbit. Carrying 100 people and their cargo, then yep. needs to be refueled in orbit, and then flies to Mars, lands on Mars. Yep. So you're bringing all the landing hardware with you, too. Is refueled on Mars, and then flies all the way back, and lands on Earth. Yeah, now here's the thing. It's not just that he wants to fly this once. Oh, no. He wants to colonize Mars. He, what right. is his projection that he, he wants to shoot for? In terms he, of how he many people? He thinks there needs to be a million humans living on Mars to create a self-sustaining colony. And he's given himself a deadline too, right? He wants to get it done by 2050. 
which I think is highly optimistic. But all, you know, in order to make that possible, when you're moving a hundred people at a time, like this is a lot of flights. Yeah. He's talking about having hundreds of spacecraft and we still have to deal with the reality of Mars orbit, which means we only get to fly there roughly every two years. Yeah. So knowing you're only going to get 12 to 15 flights to Mars, depending on when you get this thing going, right? So right. If we're, he wants to do first flights in 2020, wants to be done by 2050 yeah. at roughly two-year cycle, right? That's 15 flights. He wants to design the spacecraft to be able to handle the you build them once they fly all of those flights. But the boosters are going to be used a ton because he's talking about lifting the the, the spaceship into orbit and then that booster coming back, and then you need three to five refueling tanks come up and refuel that spacecraft so that it's basically lifted with the minimum fuel necessary to get into orbit, mm. and then has to be fully refueled to actually fly to Mars, and then fully refueled on Mars, flown back. Right. And how many flights per year would he have to fly in order to make that goal? So we're talking 10,000 trips to Mars, right? Wow. Total, right? To move a million people at a hundred per, although he's saying he should be able to increase that number. And I would say, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and each time you fly to Mars, you're talking the flight with the spacecraft plus five flights of refueling. So that's six flights each to make that done. So that's like 60,000 launches and it 15 shots at that. So you're talking 4,000 launches every two years. Oh my. Now, just to do the math, the busiest spaceflight season in the history of man was about 95 flights in a year. Oh, my. Okay. So, these are really, really outrageous numbers. Yeah. In terms of the total amount of flight, logistics, and so forth. But it also begs the question, like, what you like about the ITS system is it's sort of self-contained. Mm. Right? That there's not a lot of infrastructure, but that's also what I don't like about it. Because wouldn't you, if you knew you were going to move a million people, wouldn't you want to build up some infrastructure to make things more efficient? Like, yeah. why are we getting all the fuel from the surface of the earth? Right. Shouldn't we pick up fuel elsewhere? Doesn't it make sense to build some of that stuff out? But before we dive into that, let's go into the details of the rocket first. Because long term, sort of the rocket part is, is very interesting. Mm. And again... The showman that is Elon, although he's really not that good of showman. This is the engineering mindset. Mm. This, the day before he made these announcements, they did their first firing of the head unit of a Raptor engine, right? This whole thing is built around the Raptor engine. And so sort of before I go telling you the crazy story, mm. they showed a video of the first firing of a methane engine of this class. Now, it wasn't a full power firing, and it wasn't the entire engine. It was the powerhead, which is the most important part, mm. without any doubt. But that's not got all the fuel recirculation. doesn't necessarily have the pump system done. Like, it's just the powerhead. Yeah. The specs on this engine concern me. Okay. But they're not incredibly outrageous. So, we're talking about a rocket engine not a lot bigger than the existing Merlin, but running on methane and at much higher pressures. Like... Much higher pressures. The Merlin 1D runs at 100 bar, right? Or, you know, roughly 1500 PSI. This engine is supposed to run at 300 bar. So three times the pressure. That's mm. 4,350 PSI. 
Okay. That's a lot of chamber pressure. That would be record-breaking chamber pressure. Highest chamber pressure ever pulled out of an engine ever. He also wants to do what's called full flow staged combustion. Now, I would recommend you go back and listen to that reusable uh, rocket show again, because we did talk a lot about engine design. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what full flow staged combustion means is you have two separate pump systems, one for your propellant and one for your oxidizer, which is more expensive and heavier, right? Because you're running two separate systems instead of running run, right? Simpler mm -hmm. engines like the Merlin 1D, if you recall, mm -hmm. have one pump right. that pumps both oxidizer and fuel. Right. They use a, a pre-burning system. In this case, it's it's a fuel-rich pre-burning because you don't want to run it perfectly mixed ratios because it runs too hot. And they dump the combusted fuel overboard. Remember that black jet coming off the outside sure, of the engine? Sure, sure. That's a very simple engine design, super reliable. There are more complicated ones. I would say the RS-25, the space shuttle engine, being the most complicated engine ever made. But note, that engine also built for reuse. Mm. So, of course, it had a complicated engine. So, this is a more complicated engine, but its advantage of having two separate pre-burning systems to get the fuel started is that you can run them at different speeds. So you have one optimized for methane. You have one optimized for oxygen. You also split their ratios. So the one optimized for the methane has excess methane in the system so that it can pump it into the combustion chamber and continue to burn it. And the one optimized for the liquid oxygen, same thing. It's optimized for excess oxygen, dumps it in the combustion chamber. So all energy ends up going into that combustion chamber and gives you sort of the optimal thrust. Yeah. He's talking about an ISP of 334 at sea level for this engine. Wow. That is one of the highest ISPs of any non-hydrogen burning engine ever made. Wow. So I did some more research on this engine concept, okay? Like this particular design of engine, there's never been one like it flown. And I'm not even just talking about the methane part. I'm talking about the full flow design. Okay. Again, the space shuttle engine's more complicated than this. It had a set of, a sec, a, a initial set of pre-burners plus some primaries. The two engines that came closest to the design, one is by the Russians, it was called the RD270. Okay. It ran on high, on on aerosene, which is these are the uh, hypergolic fuels, so they they were to the toxic fuels, but it came in at close to these kinds of numbers. And they got as far as testing the engine before the whole project was canceled, never flew. Hmm. NASA in the early 2000s developed uh, a powerhead with this full flow design that never got past just initial sets of tests. So we are talking about an engine design that has never really flown. It'll be the biggest methane engine ever fired. The power class is not outrageous. You know, that's 690,000 pounds of thrust. Like, the F1 was 1.5 million, but it was nowhere near as efficient as they're trying to pull out here. Right, right. And I'm happy that this engine's going to be in the world, irrespective of the Mars stuff and so forth. And, you know, there's a whole conversation about the value of this rocket by itself. Right. But because, this engine... Right, because the stuff that we learned from doing this crazy experiment, you know, even if we don't get to Mars it will advance the technology to the next level. Totally. The When I look at the design of the Raptor engine, I look at an engine that was built from the outset for reuse. Mm. Methane is a very clean burning fuel. It's, it's cryogenic, but you cool it with the same stuff you cool your liquid oxygen, so that's fine. Its ratio is pretty close one-to-one, 
of uh, methane to liquid oxygen, which is nice. It's not exactly, but it's close. Mm. You know, as opposed to hydrogen, which is much colder, much harder to handle, and is more like two to one to liquid oxygen. So your yeah. tank sizes are good. The, the dimensions are reasonable. Like, this is a good engine. I'm glad it's being built. Okay. So let's talk about the ITS booster. Yeah. So we're talking about a rocket with more than three and a half times the thrust of the Saturn V. Now, <laughs> let's talk about the Saturn V. What was it, and why did they decide on the configuration that they ended up with? So, I mean, it was the 1960s. It was also the space race. They were trying to get to the moon first. And so, in some ways, Saturn V is a compromised rocket. Mm. The one thing the Americans had in their pocket that nobody else had was that F1 engine, right? Mm -hmm. RP1 LOX engine with one and a half million pounds of thrust. They only needed five motors at the bottom of this enormous stage to be able to get to the moon. But mm -hmm. that is what Saturn V was optimized for. And one of the reasons that they stopped flying it is it was a relatively expensive rocket for a mission that was not as important anymore. Okay. In its optimal configuration, it was able to lift 140 metric tons, which makes it, up until now, the most powerful rocket ever flown. In fact, it's going to be true until this new rocket flies. Oh. Uh, but, I mean, a few important things to look at. One of the, the advantage of having just five engines on the bottom is the plumbing's pretty straightforward because... This booster is supposed to have 42 Raptor engines on it. What? At the bottom of that rocket is going to be 42 engines. Now, the outer ring is 21 engines. The inner ring is 14 engines. And then in the center is a cluster of seven engines. And those are the only engines that are gimbaled, right? So 35 of these engines will be fixed in place just for thrust. And the seven engines in the middle can actually maneuver to yeah. turn the rocket. Gimbaled meaning, yeah, they have an engines on them that can move them in different directions. Yeah, hydraulics, right, so, that actually allow them a certain amount of mo mo movement to maneuver the rocket. So, do the laws of physics allow for 42 of these engines to be strapped together like this? It is unprecedented. The closest rocket I could find to this design would be the Soviet N-1 moon rocket, which failed. Okay. The N-1 had about 30 engines in its first stage because the Russians never solved the big rocket problem. So they just put in lots of little rocket engines, relatively speaking. The half million pounds of thrust is not that little, but still little. And, and again, I, when I started out looking at this, I said, that's a major, that 42 engines is a huge problem. Mm. It's never worked before. There's so many issues around that. Uh, and an example is the N1. But as I've now spent time, more information is available at the N1 today than there ever was when the Soviet Union was around because they kept that failure secret for a long time. Yeah. They were pretty close to flying the N1 successfully when the Americans made it to the moon and they just stopped trying. Hmm. The failure in the N1 was some interaction problems between their engines, but it was mostly their flight computers, which this is the 1960s. Their flight computers are just not that sophisticated. Okay. The challenge here is that each of these engines is not going to run exactly the same. Their thrust is never going to be perfectly uniform. Their vibration frequencies are not going to be perfectly uniform. And there's a lot of them, and they're all working very hard. Yeah. That's a lot of vibration and acoustic effects to deal with. I'm going to presume that modern computing can deal with it as well. Yeah. But think about the plumbing problem of trying to get an even amount of fuel and oxidizer to every one of those turbo pumps in all 42 engines, all clustered at the bottom of that rocket base. 
That's a lot of pipes. That's a lot of pipes and a lot of fuel that has to go very fast. And it has to move exactly evenly, which also feeds into why you want full flow staged combustion so that you can have computers smart enough to adjust flow very precisely to keep those engines even. And what's the alternative to full flow? Right, that they can actually measure that. Uh, there's a bunch of other engine designs that are simpler than this, right? But normally you would have one pump that would run both your oxidizer and your propellant through it. Mm. The full flow having separate means they can, they can adjust more precisely. Okay. So you're going to be able to optimize the engine in a lot of ways. Huh. So I started out being more worried about that. There's another effect that the Saturn engine suffered from, especially in Saturn, the whole Saturn assembly suffered from called POGO. Pogo. So, that sounds like an acronym, but it isn't, is it? It was not actually an acronym. It was it was very much a description of pogo sticking. Yeah, okay. So what would happen in and again, this is the 1960s. Tech was not quite as advanced. Mm. As the rocket thrusted upward, the gravitational effects, the pressure would force more fuel into the engines, which would make them surge so they would push even harder. As it surged, it would sort of overpower itself, and so they would ease off again. And this was literally multiple Gs of force pushing back and forth on the rocket. And there was a concern it would rip it apart. Since then, they have learned to create baffling systems and control systems for fuel surge. But it adds even more plumbing to it. Okay. I would argue the single largest problem the booster is going to have right off the bat is that it is so large... And so heavy that its acoustic effects when it is fired at full power will damage all buildings around it. Whoa. So when the Saturn V was flown, they were absolutely concerned about this exact problem. And in fact, the closest buildings to the launch pad we're talking about, which is 39B, that's where Apollo 11 lifted off, where the space shuttle flew from, and where this rocket is supposed to fly from. The vehicle assembly building, the gigantic building that they actually built the Saturn Vs in, is right. only three miles away. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which is about five kilometers. Yeah. And that building was built to tolerate the acoustic shock of the Saturn V. The low right? frequency was, rumble. That's right. They built it to deal with that. The first time the shuttle flew, it did more damage. Because even though it wasn't as heavy as Saturn V, it had some really remarkable motors on it. And it actually blew down fencing, did a bunch of damage. They came up with new acoustic treatments, this water deluge system and so forth to try and mediate that. But this is three and a half times the thrust of the Saturn V, this rocket. This rocket is going to do damage. One of the things that may have to happen is that this they actually build an offshore platform to launch it. Hmm. They have to get it away from the land because just the amount of power we're talking about is insane. Wow. Do you think that there would be a danger to the people inside it um, from the acoustic shock? Because I know from the acoustic experience I have in the recording studio that low-frequency waves are very, very hard to control. I, I'm with you, and I, and I don't think it's that big of a crisis. I do think they're going to outrun most of the shock waves. That's at the bottom of the rocket, which is a good – by the way, it's a big rocket. This is like more than 250 feet away. <laughs> Okay. Uh, and you are running ahead of it. So it's, it's, uh, probably going to be fine for the folks on board, but we're going to have a real challenge figure out where to fly this thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think there's any way to get away from that. NASA was experimenting with rocket designs larger than Saturn V. There was a rocket design called Nova that was actually going to mount eight of those F1 engines in the bottom. 
Uh, the design was too wide for them to actually work with at the time, so it never really made it. But, you know, they, the good news is they've already done a certain amount of research in this space. Oh, good. The biggest thing to realize is how powerful a booster we're talking about. So they're talking about this is going to be able to lift 300 tons in reusable mode. So lift 300 tons with enough fuel left over to fly back and land back at the pad. Yeah. But if you're willing to use it as an expendable, 550 tons of lift. Wow. That's a lot of lift, dude. Considering the Saturn V lifted 140 metric tons. Yeah. Jeez. You know, you're talking four times the power. (sighs) That's a lot of lift. It's just an unbelievable amount of lift. And we should have a, you know, nothing compares to this. Saturn V is the most powerful rocket ever flown, right? They say the Falcon 9 Heavy, which still hasn't flown and is going to be delayed, is could lift 54 metric tons, so one-tenth what this would lift. Yeah. When you talk about actual flying rockets, the shuttle and the Proton-M, the Russian rocket, are around 23, 24 metric tons. Mm-hmm. The Delta IV Heavy can lift 28. Wow. Jeez. You're going to jump to 550. This is a little crazy. It's crazy. It's just, it is so much bigger a rocket than anything you've ever seen before. Does he have something up his sleeve that we don't know about? You know, some sort of space age materials or warp drive or something crazy like that? Or is he bona fide nuts? Well, one of the things they talk about for this rocket design to get it to the kind of performance factors we're talking about. And the numbers on it are unbelievable, right? He's talking about this rocket costing $230 million. And if he can actually deliver the rocket at that price, even without reuse, that is less than $1,000 a kilogram per lift. It's like $780 a kilogram per lift. Wow. As opposed to the Falcon 9, which is currently incredibly economical, at $2,700 US dollars per kilogram of lift. So this is below a thousand. It's, 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 if it's true, it's wild, but paper rockets, man, they're always amazing. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to call the rubber truck to come take me away. This is nuts. <laughs> but exciting if it's true. Yeah. Maybe we should send the rubber truck to Elon's house. Uh, I, I like his optimism, but yeah. I don't know. It's it's a good question. It is a good question. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Derek Sheehan's. Congratulations, Derek. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Derek Sheehan's. And uh, Derek, you just won the DevExpress D-Experience subscription. That's a big pile of awesome for my friends over there. And if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree 
to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. This vehicle, yes, Elon Musk wants to build it out of carbon fiber, right? Right. Composite. Composite. Yeah. And this is the lightest, strongest material known to man that's actually manufacturable. So far. And I w- I've been reading a lot and watching and listening to different pieces around that. You know, one of the scientists in the space says, when you say composite tank, you need to think burnt string and glue. Huh. Because that's what we're actually making the tank out of. Burnt string and glue. And glue. That's what composite tanks actually are. Carbon fiber is burnt string and epoxy resins are glues. And that's what you're making tanks from. And yeah, I was deeply concerned about that particular issue because you're talking unprecedented things. But again, if you dig into the research in a deep way, you find out a few things. Do you ever remember a rocket called the DCX or or they call the Delta Clipper? No, I'm just not up on my rockets like you are. So this was the precursor to this landing on your tail thing. In fact, most of the technologists that work for Douglas that built that DCX have gone to work for Blue Origin and SpaceX and so forth. Hmm. So if you go, this is in the 90s, they were doing having a tail landing rocket. And the original DCX was a metallic structure rocket running on liquid oxygen and liquid, uh, and liquid hydrogen. And could take off on its tail landing. And it was a subscale model, so it could only fly so far. It was still 60 feet tall, but, right. you know, it wasn't full size. NASA got involved after the initial test to make a new version called the DCXA. Okay. And they actually flew, in 1996, a composite liquid hydrogen fuel tank. Wow. So, there are flown tanks. They haven't flown into space, but they have flown. Hmm. Right. So, but interesting that they did liquid hydrogen, which is dramatically colder than liquid oxygen, because the issue with composites is not just its ability to deal with cryogenic fuels, which is important because it makes the material brittle. And often you're dealing with a situation where the inside of the tank is at negative 250 degrees Mm. and the outside of the tank is hot. So the pressure, the thermal gradient pressure on this tank is really serious, Hmm. right? Now... What they've been avoiding for a long time is liquid oxygen because they've had enough problems with liquid hydrogen. There's another rocket, and someday we'll do the single stage to orbit show. Okay. There was a there was a prototype concept called the X-33, which was a precursor to making a single stage to orbit rocket called the Venture Star. Mm. And they were trying to make uh, composite tanks for that as well. And the failure of their hydrogen composite tank in construction and testing was one of the things that canceled the X-33. But these are still in the 90s and early aughts. Technology is clearly advanced. The challenge here is liquid oxygen in a composite tank. And there is demonstrations shown that when you take that much oxidizer and put it close to carbon fiber, any impact can actually cause it to burst into flames. Wow. Now, that being said, in the past couple of years, there's been enough research done that we're starting to see liquid oxygen tanks actually being built and tested. The Space Launch System, NASA's new super rocket, is using composite tanks for hydrogen, and it looks like they will for oxygen. There is a company called Rocket Lab, which builds small microsat rockets, inexpensive, that is using nothing but carbon fiber for the tanks, including liquid oxygen. And I did find a research study talking specifically about a lining for liquid oxygen to keep it away from the carbon fiber called ethylene terafluoroethylene or ETFT, that 
can line the inside of liquid oxygen tanks because that material, which is a kind of polymer, can handle the cryogenic temperatures and protects from liquid oxygen corrosion. Mm -hmm. So there is now evidence. Again, this is another one of those things where I looked at, because he showed a picture in that video of this massive carbon fiber tank. And you're like, is that going to actually work? And I'm saying now it's more likely to work. Everybody's been researching on this. Composite tanks, even for liquid oxygen, may have come of age. And you're talking roughly, volume for volume, a one-third weight decrease hmm. over the metallic alternatives of like aluminum, lithium, and so forth. Can we talk so, about the viability of manufacturing that many carbon fiber um, tanks? I think it's very challenging. The scale of this manufacturing is unprecedented. Nobody's made this many rockets before. The dealing with the failures is not a small thing. How are we going to test them effectively? Uh, carbon fiber used to be held back in size because you needed an autoclave. Yeah. Which is a kind of, of special furnace to cure the epoxy. But new techniques have demonstrated out of autoclave manufacturing for very large, uh, elements. So a lot of that has been solved. Mm. Right. It's, they're not small problems, but they've been largely addressed. So I came into this thinking the composite tanks are a huge problem. But as I finish my research, I'm coming out of it going, yes, I think we can do this. I think we've gotten to a point now where it's time to start testing this. This may be a bit big of a rocket to test it on, but, you know, it's not unprecedented now. Yeah. We have some good information around there. Yeah. But let's get back to the system as a whole, right? I think we've sort of, I think the booster is the most important part. I want it to exist. Before the show ends, I want to talk about other things we could do with that booster. Right. But getting back to the Mars side of things, if you go back and watch the video, mm. there was this whole refueling process. And in the video, they did the silliest thing I've ever seen. They showed a video of it launching the rocket with all the people on it, and that being in orbit, and then the booster coming back and landing beside an already fueled refueling tank that they would pick up, put on the rocket, and fly again, which you'd never do, mm. right? And they are talking three to five of those for each one. Now, a few problems with this, and lots of people pointed this out. Why are you flying the refueling rockets after the people rocket? Right. Like why right. would you put the people right, you know, why don't you already have the fuel there? In fact, why not build a gas station in orbit and then put all the fuel up there and then just have the refueling, the, the people rocket show up, dock, refuel, and go? So is it feasible to not only have a fueling station in space, but to actually manufacture fuel in space? Yes, both things are feasible, but you know what ha no one's ever figured out? How would you refuel in space? Sure. Because the tanks are floating, right? The fuel is in free fall. How do you get it to actually pump out in a reliable way? It'd almost be easier if you could do it on the moon or something. Well, you, and you want to limit the number of gravity wells, but in the video, you see what I thought was a really silly thing, which was the manned spacecraft, the spaceship, with the refueling ship mounted to it side by side. And when mm. I looked at it, I'm like, that looks really dumb. Why would you do that? Mm. And then it occurred to me, one of the ways you settle fuel so that you can pump it reliably is to move, right? I mean, you have the same problem with rocket fuels when you're in free fall and you want to restart the engine, right? Because the fuel's floating around inside the tank. How do you get it all down at the bottom where the pumps are? And what you do is you fire these what they call ullage engines, just little boosters, right? They're typically running off pressurized nitrogen or helium or something to just shove the craft in a particular direction so the fuel settles to the bottom of the tank and then you light the big motor. Mm. Make sense? Mm. Yeah. 
So if you take those two pieces and you put them side by side and then you fire ullage motors, you could then run pumps to actually drain the tanks into the yeah. big tank. Yeah. That's actually feasible. More feasible than having a refueling station and more feasible uh, than pretty much any other option, for better or worse. He never explained this. Mm. And by the way, at the end of the video, the big long one where he talks about making interplanetary species, there's a Q&A session that is a complete train wreck. Oh. <laughs> like, people, and he actually said several times, questions, not essays, please. Like, people just wanted to talk so badly. It right. Was, it was awful. Mm. But nobody ever asked that question. How the heck are you going to make refueling work? Yeah, because right. we've never done that. We've never pumped cryogenic fuels from one tank to another in free fall. And right away, you're like, I want a station. I want to do it all in the stable location. I want to be able to buy the fuel separately so people could mine it on the moon or off of asteroids and bring it there. But one of the simplest solutions to pumping fuel is to be able to move while the pumping's going on so that you create enough, enough inertia to actually put the fuel down to the end of tanks. Hmm. And that is totally doable if you're actually free in free-floating conditions. So a station oh. may be an obstacle to making this work. Yeah. Now, I do think you're going to spend a long time in orbit while each of these different five refueling ships come up, dock with you, then you thrust and refuel. Like, you're going to modify your orbit a bunch of time to make that work. It's But I actually think it's the simplest system. Uh, and, you know, there's always this question about, you know, what do you do with the tank when it's empty? Mm. SpaceX has two significant failures, right? The, after launch, they had the in, in CRS-6 when the second stage burst. That was a failure with their helium pressurization system. Okay. And the explosion on the launch pad that just happened a few weeks ago yeah. also seems to be pointing to a problem with the helium system. Hmm. And the helium system is there because they, they fill the tank with helium to keep the tank under pressure so that the fuel will flow efficiently into the pumps. Okay. Now, you only need a helium system like that when you're dealing with a fuel like RP1, which is naturally a liquid. When yep. you switch to methane, you can use gaseous methane. So as you heat the methane up, it turns back to a gas. You pump it into the tank to keep the tank pressurized. Mm. Right? Mm. So that yeah. actually simplifies their rocket as a whole. Like this new rocket could be a dramatically better rocket in a lot of respects. I want the Raptor engine to exist, not necessarily for this gigantic booster, but for a normal size rocket. Yeah. Right? Uh, two yeah. engines. Yeah. That kind of thing. Okay. Hmm. I'm also concerned about the spaceship itself carrying Reentry systems for both Mars and Earth, because they're different. Mars has less than a, ten, a hundredth the atmospheric pressure, so there's just enough atmosphere that it interferes with your landing, but not enough to really break well, so it's a very different requirement for reentry. It does make more sense to me that you have a ship that's really good at transiting between Earth and Mars, and different ships that go down to the surface of Mars and back up again, and down to the surface of Earth and back up again. So the all single use is kind of nutty. Yeah. And he totally hand waved past the radiation problems, the artificial gravity problems. Like, I don't think he's addressed any of that. But in the end, he's also said, although I don't think anyone was listening, that they're in the transportation business, not right. necessarily the colonization business. Oh, okay. So keeping humans healthy and, and actually building out the colonies and so forth, he's ignored a lot of that or just chose not in that hour, hour to detail it. Well, like the details yeah, in the rockets. I, I'm I have concerns about 
just sending people, you know, I, what about how long it's going to take to actually put stuff there and get it working so that we can have a sustainable uh, colony? I mean, right. That you don't just drop people off on Mars and say, see ya. Yeah, good luck. Good luck. I mean, nothing no. grows. There's no water. No, there is water. We found water. It's just not liquid. Okay. All right. There's water, but it has to be extracted and it has to be refined and, or, yes. or uh, you know, cleaned up. I'm just saying it's just not so easy. There has to be infrastructure first before people can go. Right. And again, the video doesn't talk about this, but obviously that needs to be there. He does say we need a refueling system for the spacecraft. So that implies something capable of mining water, extracting carbon dioxide, and using the Sabater process to make methane. Mm. Right? Lots of methane, enough to refuel the rocket completely, and enough liquid oxygen to refuel the rocket completely. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, I've been doing the math on how much power it requires to run a Sabater process that size. You're not going to do it with solar panels, kids. We're <laughs> going to need nuclear power. Yeah. Right? It's just too much power. And we talked about this before. Is nuclear a good option for powering rocket engines, at least once you get above the atmosphere? There are nuclear engines, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about making enough electricity on the surface of Mars yeah. to actually be able to run a refueling plant. Right. Right. That's the issue. There are, And these are relatively small reactors. This is not the nuclear reactor from Three Mile Island, right? Mm. We're not trying to make gigawatts of power here. We're talking megawatts of power. Mm. And we can make reactors that are relatively portable in the 100-ton class, now that we have a rocket this powerful, mm. that we could actually bring down a power plant, bring down a factory, bring down extractors and miner, mining equipment and habitats and so forth. Mm. So in the end, I think he focused on the most important thing, which was build a rocket powerful enough to do all the things. Sure. Okay. I still believe in we're going to need artificial gravity, something spinning. We're going to need radiation protection for that journey. Mm. You know, normally it's 120 days to Mars. He sort of hinted, I think he can do to 90 days by going faster and breaking harder. Mm. But that seemed hand wavy to me too. Mm. But, you know, when we go back to the earlier shows we've done on Mars, I talked about the Aldrin cyclers, about yes. building dedicated spacecraft meant for this job. Right. Of flying back and forth between the planets. If you really want to make humans an interplanetary species, you put up ships that stay in continuous orbits, that yeah. are powered with nuclear power, that are radiation shielded, that are just meant be, you know, they're purpose built to fly back and forth between planets. Right. And that makes a lot more sense. And now that you've given me something in a lift 300 to 500 tons, okay, I don't need to build it in space. I could build it on the land and make it a dedicated vehicle for that purpose. But yeah. why stop and start it when you can leave it in continuous orbits? And that makes a lot of sense, Richard. I mean, let's get them up into orbit, keep them in orbit, refuel them in orbit, and then take off from orbit. It makes more sense to have a 500-ton spacecraft that flies back and forth between the Earth and Mars in, an, in a cycler orbit, and you intercept it with a lightweight, fast rocket with a bunch of people on it. Right to meet it at, at Earth and then fly that that lightweight ship back to Earth. Yeah. And the heavy ship with all of its protection, artificial gravity and so forth on it, just cruises to Mars in six months in relative comfort. Yeah. And then the same thing, you intercept it and bring the people off to land them on Mars. And then it does its long leg out and comes back in again. 
Because obviously the the real problem is this thing we have called the atmosphere. Getting yeah. stuff in and out of it is uh, takes a lot of thrust and a lot of power, and, and right. produces well, and, a lot of wear and tear. Well, and it needs a, it needs a different ship design. A ship well optimized to go in and out of a gravity well and in and out of an atmosphere is different from a ship optimized to fly between planets. It's food for thought. Yes, let's have some fun. You just gave me a rocket capable of lifting 500 tons. What can you do with a rocket that can lift 500 tons? Yes, and send a whole lot of uh, infrastructure to Mars. Well, first, you know how much the entire International Space Station weighs? 500 <laughs> tons. <laughs> so maybe really? you could but encapsulate another ship in that ship. Well, it's just sort of a realization. It took 40 flights to build the space station, and there's still a few more to go. This could do it in one, mm. right? And if the numbers actually come out at the $700 per kilogram realm for a single use, like as soon as you get into reuse, that number drops to the floor. Right. If I can use that rocket multiple times, right? It's crazy how much cheaper it is. You know what other numbers I went back and looked at? Space-based power. Yeah. I remember that. You did the math for how many dollars it would take to get enough solar panels up into orbit to actually right. make a difference and put a dent in our electricity needs. I was looking at a gigawatt of power, just a gigawatt, yeah. one gigawatt, which is not enough, right? Not we enough. use much more power than that. But a decent sized power plant is a gigawatt of power. Mm. And what I used was I took designs from the space station. So our, some of our largest solar panels in ever flown in space are the ones on the space station. And based on the weight of those, which came out at roughly two metric tons for 10 kilowatts of power. So to get to a gigawatt, it was 200,000 metric tons, mm. which is a lot. But if I can use the non-reusable version of the spacecraft, which will lift me 550 metric tons, I can lift all of that in 650 flights. Yeah. Now, at $700 a kilogram, we go from more than a trillion dollars to fly the whole thing mm. to about $80 billion. Wow. Which is a lot, yeah. but it's not unprecedented, right? The U.S. spends almost five times that on on military in a year, right? And if we can use reuse, like if you can get 10 launches per booster and you reduce the weight down to the 300 tons for the reuse, you're talking 16 billion. If you can get 100 uses out of it, now you're talking like one and a half billion. That is the price of a reactor. Yeah, right. Like you're in the ballpark at these lift numbers. Now I have heavy, serious concerns with any given rocket booster flying a hundred times, mm. especially mm. with those composite tanks, right? Mm. That yeah. repeated heating and cooling and heating and cooling. Like I just don't expect those tanks to last. That's a lot of flights, yeah, but yeah. still we're in the ballpark for actually flying space-based power. Yeah. And that to me is very exciting. There, the I would argue the biggest reason to build this, to, to even go down this path, he, is to take his obsession with making us a multi-planet species to build big lift rockets that mm. open the door to significantly lowering flight costs. And like even if sub thousand kilo mark is a big deal. And as we said, even if he doesn't make it to Mars, the the advances in technology just to build something that big will be very helpful. Absolutely. Now, let's give a little reality check as we're coming into the end of the show, which is 
where is SpaceX right now? They do not have the funding for this whole rocket system. And in fact, they've had a pretty tough year, mm. right? That explosion on the pad was kind of a big deal, and it's going to delay everything. Yeah. They originally talked about flying the Falcon 9 the end of this year. It's definitely going to be next year now. Mm-hmm. And the the crewed dragon, right, which they're, the, one of the arguments they made on that explosion is that had it happened in flight, the escape system would have worked just fine. Mm. So the first flight, which of what they call DM-1, the first crew dragon, they were going to fly with nobody on it, but they were going to do it on abort at the worst time, at the highest stress points at max Q, mm-hmm. was supposed to fly mid-2017, probably yeah. pushed to the end of 2017. So we've lost at least a half a year. Hmm. Uh, with And then the second flight is supposed to be actually NASA astronauts on board. So they're, they're getting there. But there is this concept called Red Dragon, right? Okay. The rocket's called Red Dragon. All right. So Red Dragon is supposed to fly in April or May of 2018 off the back of a Falcon Heavy, lifting about 13 metric tons to the surface of Mars. Well, this is actually going to be a six-ton vehicle mm. to land on Mars. Mm-hmm. So it would land by the end of 2018, possibly 2019, depending on the flight. And it's going to do something unprecedented. It's going to try and do a rocket-propelled landing, what they call a hypersonic landing on Mars. It's the precursor to what these big ships would even look like, the first attempt. It requires the Falcon Heavy. So the pushback on Falcon Heavy is a big deal. It might miss this window. There's a race. If they don't make April, May 2018, they'll probably have to wait to 2024. Yeah, wow. But this is the race that we're in. If you're going to do these kinds of numbers, and he wants to fly more Red Dragons, this will be the first one. Mm-hmm. And it's a serious, you know, this is not just a crazy mission that that uh, that Elon's talking about. This this Red Dragon mission has NASA signing off on it. They are paying for part of it because of this, the sensors they want to use and the tracking system they want to do with it to actually figure out if they can do this landing. Because we've never landed six tons on the surface of Mars. The largest payload we ever landed on Mars is the Curiosity rover at one ton, and that used the Sky Crane system, mm-hmm. right? Which was heat shield to rocket boosters to cable system to drop the the vehicle down, and then the rocket booster flies away. Incredibly complicated. They call it the seven minutes of terror, right? Yeah, yeah. This is supposed to be reentry on a heat shield, then fire your rocket motors at hypersonic speed, break, land precisely. Yeah. But if he pulls it off, that's six tons precisely on the surface of Mars, unprecedented. That that would be a new level. Because yep. we, when you're talking about that big rocket he wants to land, that's 150 tons, that spacecraft, right? Whew. Like empty, it's 150 tons. You put on people, cargo, and so forth, that's a 450-ton vehicle. It'll be lighter when it's most of its fuel's burned for landing. But still, you're talking about an unbelievable amount of mass. And this is just... Stuff we don't know of what yeah. it's going to take to actually build a craft of that size and land it successfully. It is a very, very difficult proposal. And I think, I want to say he's shooting for the moon, but clearly he's shooting for Mars, right? <laughs> what he's done is set a high watermark for what's possible out there. Yeah. And then, and I feel like in some respects, skipped a bunch of steps in between. Mm. But if he builds this rocket, if this rocket gets built, a 300 to 500 metric ton lift rocket, it does, and at the prices that he's talking about, the sub one thousand kilos, uh, sub one thousand dollars per kilo, it's a game changer in a big way. Yeah, agreed. I still think he's nuts. 
<laughs> but maybe not as nuts as a thought. I hope that came across is that I thought he was nuts when I watched the video, but as I dug deeper into it without his own explanations, just looking at what was possible. Yeah. It seemed less crazy than when I started. So it's. I agree. And he also could be softening it so that people will get behind it. If you say, we're going to send a hundred people in a ship to Mars, you know, everybody would sign up and say yes. But if he says, we're going to build this rocket so we can see how we can possibly get the infrastructure to Mars and then maybe build some stuff and send a couple people. And then once we get a, something going on, then we can start sending more people, you know, then that's kind of like, yeah, yeah. It's not as exciting, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And, and the thing I, I need to remember about Elon is that he is an engineer first. I don't yeah. think he's that good of a showman. He's, he sort of stumbles his way through that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I think the, and he's not a particularly good storyteller. So I do feel like he's probably done a lot more research than he talked about in that one hour. Mm. And, and that's the most part is I've dug in to try and clarify facts. I've found better things, you know, better outcomes than I thought. So I am pretty excited about it. Well, that's great, Richard. And uh, a really good overview of what's going on with SpaceX and Elon Musk and Mars. Thank you. Thank you very much. I don't know what to do next on space. You know, along the way, pulling this data together, I got a real interesting look at what to do with the space station next, because it's only going to last to 2025. Yeah. Uh, I hinted about the whole single stage to orbit. That story is an interesting conversation. Uh, there's a ton of research on better vehicles for interplanetary flight that we could talk about as well. Um, we got to ask the listeners, like, what do you want next? Because there's lots of next. Yeah. Well, uh, we have a URL that we'll post where you can vote on your favorite topic. Absolutely. Okay, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got